0: Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to
1: discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to another episode of Making It Plain. I am your host, Dr. Key. In this episode of Making It Plain, we are discussing Black women in academia with our special guest. Dr. Felicia Commodore, assistant professor, researcher, author, and guru of Black women in the Academy. Welcome, Dr. Commodore. Thank you, Dr. Sparkman Key. I'm glad to be here. So I am excited to have this conversation today as a Black woman who has recently um, went through the tenure process and received tenure. Of course, I've had my own experience in the academy. And as a doctoral student um, going through the Ph.D. process as a single parent, um, you know, while, you know, just having so many different challenges and not having mentorship and support and stuff like that, um, I felt this topic was something that was very important for us to tackle today. And so from your view and, and the research that you've done, um, what type of things are Black women dealing with in the academy?
0: Um, that's a great question. And I think, um, I think it's kind of layered, right? So it depends on where you may be at in the academy. So I think when we, um, often when we say that we often are thinking about black women, um, who are either faculty or professionals, um, administrators in, um, higher ed. And, um, I think those women are experiencing, um, everything from Um, their own personal um, dealings with possibly imposter syndrome, but also dealing with environments and climates that are not supportive, um, that question um, not only their intelligence, but their ability. Uh, They're dealing with um, challenges with moving forward in promotion. Um, And in tenure, we actually know that Um, There's a very small, small percentage of full professors in the academy that are Black women, Um, even though they're, um, compared to their counterparts, there's um, more of them at the assistant professor level, which means that something's happening along the way that they're not reaching tenure, whether or not that is that they are not receiving promotion in tenure or that they're, they're exiting the system, but something's happening. Um, and then I think there's also <clears throat> when you look at graduate students and undergraduate students, um, black women who are black women in the academy, they are also dealing with very similar things as black women who are faculty or administrators, but they're also um, dealing with um, uh, Kaba, uh, one a scholar, she names it the new model minority, um, and in that we are seeing all these reports come out that Black women, um, compared to other groups, are the most educated within group um, out there. They're getting degrees at a, um, a larger number and quicker rate than um, particularly their Black male counterparts. Um, and, and, uh, and some other minority groups, um, we are seeing them posted up, right, becoming CEOs at different places and opening businesses and being leaders in different ways. Um, And so there's this idea that somehow Black women are making it, right? Like they must be this super group or this super women that are doing amazing things. And so we kind of just are like, oh, they can handle everything and they can do it all. And we don't really know what's going on with them on the way to doing it all and being achieving all these things. And so what we're finding, the more we're starting to do research on the area, of Black women experiences as students is that they're being successful, but at what cost? Um, and so, whether or not they have real supports, um, whether they too are engaging in um, imposter syndrome or navigating imposter syndrome, um, what uh, barriers they are being forced to overcome, um, their mental health. where um learning that some of them are not—they're ha- being successful, but mentally are unhealthy. Um, And so we're trying to find out more because there isn't actually a lot of uh, scholarship around what Black women are actually dealing with as students um, and also in in other areas of academia. But I think um, that's been the challenge is that um, we're facing, Black women are facing a lot of different barriers and climate issues and lack of support, but they're still achieving And so, um, really trying to dig underneath of what we traditionally call success, and really thinking about our um, Black women being given the um, support and um, needed to be holistically successful while they are being what we know is traditionally successful.
1: Thank you for that. And you know, with this podcast, I like to make sure it's relatable and that our audience really kind of understand what we mean. Um, around this term imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to unpack that a little bit. Would you like to um, share <laughs> some insight on imposter syndrome? And I can, I definitely share some insight as well.
0: Great. Right. Um, yeah, I was supposed to say you're the human services person. Um, yes, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can do it.
0: But um, <laughs> I, think, I think generally speaking, um, imposter syndrome is really this um, idea that you carry around with you that um, wherever you have, whatever you have achieved or whatever spaces you've been given access to, that um, it was kind of by happenstance or it was because people misjudged what you actually were capable of doing or what abilities you have or how intelligent you were. And so you're always in these spaces in the back of your mind thinking you're going to get found out. Right. Like at some point, someone's going to find out that you are, quote, unquote, an imposter. And so it, um, it's, it's it's a, it's a stress inducing kind of anxiety inducing syndrome um, that can show up in, in a variety of ways or manifest itself in different ways. So sometimes that may be trying to shrink back or trying not to be seen or making yourself invisible. But sometimes it can also show up as you as the opposite is that you go above and beyond the call of duty or what you're being asked to do um, so that you can make sure that no one questions anything that you do. And so um, I think that when we talk about imposter syndrome, people think it looks one way all the time, but it doesn't always look the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may not, um, because I've heard people say, well, I've never had imposter syndrome. And I always am like, hmm, I like. like I, I wonder about that because I just don't know that society is set up in a way that you haven't been socialized as a mi- minoritized or marginalized group. That right. the thought has never crossed your mind. Right. Um, it's just that maybe you have learned of different ways to navigate it, so it doesn't overtake um, how you approach things. But um, so I think. But I think it is something that is um, a result of being in a society that um, particularly for marginalized groups um, and oppressed groups to keep them from thinking that they should have access to certain things or that they should be in certain spaces, Mm -hmm. um, which helps the uh, dominant group to stay in control. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm so what we, you know, What I know that as a faculty member myself is that I work for myself, my peers, and students to remind them that because you're a marginalized person or you're part of a marginalized group, you had to be qualified (laughs) to be where you are because the the forces that be would never let you be in these spaces unless you were probably overqualified exactly spaces exactly right. Um, but it, it is um. It is something that uh, we find with marginalized groups that um, will often manifest itself in one way or another. And and in academia specifically, it seems that the more you get towards kind of the progression of being in the academy, so from undergraduate to graduate to faculty member to tenured faculty member to Mm -hmm. upper level administrator, um, it can get more intense because there's less of you hmm So um, <laughs> if you start to look around and you're the only one, it can produce um some feelings of, well, how how why me? Like why am I the only one? How did I get here? Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I think that that is part of it. And for black women specifically, we carry around um this this, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw calls it intersectionality. And this yes. we, we carry around multiple intersecting oppressed identities. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and that's just, um, just being, when we think about your gender and your race, and then that there could be other things that are also marginalized depending on your sexual orientation or your, um, socioeconomics as your class. Mm-hmm. So, um, so all of these things, um, black women experience in a, in a way that is unique. Mm-hmm. um, to, to other groups. And so imposter syndrome often looks unique for them as well.
1: And you are right on point with this imposter syndrome, (laughs) but I will say that, um, and then I know in my experience with imposter syndrome, the experiences that I had in the academy actually perpetuated this imposter syndrome feeling. And in an example of that, and I have, I have two quick examples, but one is when I was um, interviewing to get into my master's program at a a huge, predominantly white institution, in that interview, it was said to me that this is not a cakewalk. So are you sure that you want to be here? (laughs) And I went home that day. I was very confident before I had that meeting. But when I went home that day, I constantly played that sentence in my mind. And if I remembered it to this day, that means it's still there. Right. Right. I kept thinking like, am I, do I belong here? Mm-hmm. You know, should I be here? And then that turned into, oh, hell yeah, I'm supposed to be here. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and so I'm going to show them that I belong here. But then when I had different challenges in the program with maybe a certain class or whatever, I would still have that thought of, do I belong here? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, this is this saying that I, I don't belong here? Mm-hmm. Um. And so I had that. And then when I entered um, the academy as a faculty member, um, I had the same type of thing. You know, I knew I wanted a tenure track position. I sought sought out those positions um, and I got the position. But once I was in the environment, I was treated as if I didn't know anything and as if I didn't have what it takes to be there. So then I started to think to myself, you know, do I belong here? Every time I enter a room, I'm the only one mm-hmm. in the room. I can't share my views. I can't share who I really am. You know, maybe I don't belong here. And you start having those type of conversations all the time, especially when you go into meetings and you're introduced. You you must be a student, right? There's right. no way in the world you could be a faculty member. <laughs> right. You know? oh, so um, and all of those things. So it would, those experiences continue to... Um, impact how I saw myself and whether I felt I belong, right? Yeah. Um and so that imposter syndrome um to me was a very normal aspect of my journey because it was yeah. there and my experiences were there. So and sp- imposter syndrome I think is a big part of of women and in our experiences in academia. Um, and I think um like you said it is two things two-sided because I had those moments in my my experiences where I felt as if I needed to do way more mm-hmm. um to show them that I belong there. Um especially on the tenure track. Mm-hmm. I went into uh you know the the being review for tenure with way more publications that I needed to have. Mm-hmm. Way more uh, presentations than I needed to have, way more, because I didn't want them to question anything on yeah. my CV, CV. And my thought was, if they tried to throw anything out, I padded it with so much more that they could not throw yeah. anything out, right? And it was to the point where my external reviewer said, is she going up for four? <laughs> right? And, 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 um, and so I think that women, um, we're not doing this for ourselves. We're not padding yeah. this for ourselves. We're doing this so that others can see us as having it. Yeah. Um and belonging, right?
0: Yeah. And I think you you bring up a good point as um when you talked about kind of it had become a normal part of your kind of existence and experience and I think um when we think about socialization and and what we how we teach black women in the academy from the the day they are undergrads, right? Their first day on campus. Um what we teach them about how how you survive the system or how you're successful in the system, the the very things you were experiencing as a faculty member, I I think a lot of our black women are experiencing as students, depending on the the campus context too, right? Because I think there are different colleges who try to foster a different type of environment for black women. Um, You look at HBCUs or even specifically you look at like all women HBCUs, like Bennett college or Spelman college, where I think the, um, not that they may not have their own challenges, but as far as black women seeing themselves in this imposter syndrome way, I don't think happens in the same way because of the environment that's created. But, but, on, on at large, I think black women college students, we teach them that that navigating that imposter syndrome is a normal part of their being. Like this is this is just something that is gonna be part of who you are. And it becomes this normalized thing as opposed to um challenging these these systems and these environments um around why is it that that we are making these Black women feel that way, right? Instead, we have somehow, somewhat taught, whether overtly or, or covertly, that, yes, you just carry this around with you, and it's going to get more and more intense every level you go, but you'll learn how to adapt, and you'll learn how to walk around with it. And for some women, that's just not healthy, right? Like, it's just, it. I mean, for all women, it's not healthy, but For some women, it manifests itself in unhealthy ways. And whether that is um, workaholism or, um, uh, you know, like I said before, extreme anxiety, uh, depression, like all of these things. Um, And so I think we have to really challenge that we have normalized this because um, you think about like when you become faculty, but if, if you've been carrying this. Around, um, with you for you know since undergrad, and you're now a dean <laughs> at an institution. This has been a very long time that you have, the, um, kind of adapted to something that is unhealthy for your your mental well being. Um, and I think in some ways we've we've socialized black women into being in the academy specifically to being comfortable with um unhealthy kind of imaginations of themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think that's something we have to, um, begin to challenge, um, but also challenge these environments and these institutions that are socializing Black women in this way.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. You know, so, and we talked a little bit about why that exists, but I want to dig a little deeper into why do you believe these challenges exist specifically for Black women? Oh, <laughs>
0: that, that that is a heavy question. Um, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. um, I think generally speaking, I would say um, when I when to focus in on academia is right. It wasn't created for us and we weren't supposed to be here. And I think when you kind of started that kind of larger level, then everything else um, about how we, the barriers we face, um, the challenges we face in the system kind of start to make sense because the reality is um, the system is working exactly the way it's supposed to, mm-hmm. right? The system is was created for white elite males. That's what academia was created for originally. And then all these other, communities and identities started finding their way into um, academia. And Black women were probably the last group to, to, be, to be pulled in. Now, it's it's still very interesting, though, when we look at the history of Black women in academia, because when Black persons at large, because you had some schools before Reconstruction that were letting Black women go to college. You think of Oberlin yeah. and places like that. Yeah. But when we think about post-slavery and Reconstruction, when we really see Black people starting to gain higher education because we have the establishment of um, HBCUs and things of that sort, Black women were encouraged somewhat to go to these colleges um, because we needed teachers. And so... Um, Black women were going to college to either, <clears throat> either they were there to continue to um, build the upper um, upper elite class of the Black community. So, you know, the like, you know, get your MRS to a nice, you know, educated Black man and we're going to keep building up the tougher echelon or to become teachers, right? So that they can go back and teach Black children. Mm-hmm. So, a little different than kind of some of um, the history around white women in, in academia. We were allowed in this space, but even in those spaces, we were limited in what it is we were seeing we were able to do, right? Um, we were, were limited in the ways in which we were able to engage and class still played a role in a lot of those things. Um, so if you were a lower class black woman, In college, your opportunity still may have been more restricted than if you had been of a um, higher socioeconomic class as a Black woman. But all that to say is that the system still was created for this prototype of a white elite male. And so as Black women are continuing to push through academia, they're having to challenge within, like, literally their bodies. Are challenging these spaces that say they're not supposed to be there they're not supposed to be capable of these things, and then I think what's unique about black women, particularly in the u s context is that black women were not seen as women <laughs> right like in the same <clears throat> uh, the same kind of Linda Perkins calls it the cult of womanhood this kind of what was considered feminine was really based around a middle class white woman so <laughs> so these when, when you start to um, see, see these Black women not only as not supposed to be in this space, not supposed to be able to be intellectual, not supposed to be able to achieve things, but also you um, masculinize their bodies and who they are, um, they also begin to be seen as workhorses. So, um, and, and we think about <clears throat> historically, even we think about in slavery, how black women were seen, they were, they were having babies and working, just, uh, doing the same thing the men were for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we post reconstruction or during reconstruction, we see them still working, um, land jobs, working as sharecroppers and farmers and migrant workers. We see them working in houses, right. As domestics. Um, so so Black women, because they're not seen in a quote-unquote protected way that we looked at white women as fragile and docile and demure and needing to be protected, right? Black women were seen as, um, I think it's Dora Hurston who said it, but like the mules of the world, mm-hmm. right? And so when you mesh all of this together and these Black women are coming into the academy, I think what we see now today, even though we have come, you know, leaps and bounds um, across the history of higher education for Black women. There's still this that, that trope and stereotype that hangs over us, in that we are not supposed to be here. We're not smart enough to be here, and if you're going to be here, we're going to work you to death because you can take it. Yeah, right. Because you you're built like that. We don't see you like we see um, white women. Mm-hmm. Or even, um, I, I would say, even Latina women are seen in a more—and um, it's not a positive thing—but they're seen in a more sexualized kind of gendered way, mm-hmm. um, which is not—that's I, I not better. But mm-hmm. um, we're we're seen as workhorses, and um, and so I think Black women, a lot of the challenges we face in the academy. It's overcoming, trying to still overcome a structure that wasn't made for us. Um, An underlying assumption that we don't have the capability to, or the intelligence to be there. And then also the underlying assumption that whatever you throw at us, we can take because we're strong Mm -hmm. and, and we can handle it and we will, we will, we will get it done and do the work and you can just pile work on us and we, we can do it and our backs won't break. And so. Um, we may have we, you know, we again leaps and bounds, we may have all these degrees and, and our St. John suits and things, but we are still <laughs> battling some very deep seated societal understandings of black women
1: mm-hmm. in this country. And one of the things that I've seen, um, just to piggyback of what you said, is that if black women try to push back against the system and say this is too much work, um, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, because I'm, you know, on a tearing track or whatever, that they are actually punished for pushing back. Right. So the idea is that same type of slave mentality as, you know, if you're in the fields, you stand in the fields for as long as I tell you to stand in the fields. And if you try to push back, you're going to get lashed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the academy, I've seen that same type of lashing happen. Um, with Black women when they try to push back and say, this is just too much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that all um, perpetuates and make Black women feel like they have to take it all or take yeah. on it all, which really goes back into that stereotype of this strong Black woman, Yeah, right?
0: And and I think these are things, um, I'm doing a study now where we're with um, two colleagues, two Black women colleagues, and we're um, looking at um, the experiences of Black women student leaders who are undergraduates. Um, and so far, we're still in doing data collection, but so far, one of the things we've been really fascinated by is like, because we're looking at how it looks in different campus contexts, but no matter what campus they're on, so far, the students we've talked to have all um, had the sentiment of um well, if I didn't do it, no one else would, right, and they're all like in four or five different organizations and leading all these set boards, and we're all thinking like, "Wow, you're like nineteen, and <laughs> you're like you might you don't think you're like overworked is like we you know we've been analyzing the the data, but they they all have this you know, I have to step up and 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 do it, and i I have to take it on because it won't get done and, and it has to get done um and so one of the things we've been um looking at is there's a there's a, a psycho- psychological um theory of superwoman schema um for black women but we've been thinking like we like to think like this happens when you become a faculty member or when you become a CEO or when you become a project manager right like mm-hmm. but this is this is something that our black girls are learning very early and we're like, well, where is that coming from, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really, um, I think it's really interesting to that, this idea that I can't just let the ball drop, even if it was never my ball, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It was never my ball to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere we're socializing Black girls very early that that if no one else is going to do it, you take it on, even if it's too much for you. Mm-hmm. Um and we're and and I am um, what we and me and my colleagues have been talking about is like if they're if they're adopting that practice at 19 and no one's stopping them then they become us right they they continue to do that and so then when they finally get to a a development stage where they're like oh I can say no or I can let the ball drop I think the fear of what that looks like. Or the discomfort of doing that is too great a lot of times.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or they think the cost is gonna be too much. Um and and so it's it's been really interesting how um we're we're socializing black girls so very early to feel like they can't say no. Mm-hmm. Or to feel like they can't let the ball drop. And somehow if if whatever it is falls apart, everyone's gonna look at them. Mm-hmm. And blame them, and um, and then that's why I go back to like this is a societal issue mm-hmm. that um academia is a microcosm of, like, because we're teaching these girls this very early, and I and I would even wonder if we're teaching them this in our homes. Yeah, um, we talk to those students; they talk about a lot of them see their moms as leaders and and the way they define that, like their mom always got things done and their mom always, you know, she did what she had to do for the family. And it's like, hmm, that translates right into um, our brains as that's what leadership is. Yeah, And yeah. so um, you carry that with you. Um, and, and then you're, you know, a tenured professor and you're like, I got I got to get it done because everyone's going to look at me like I'm not um a leader or I'm not capable because I let the ball drop even though like I said it was never your ball to begin with.
1: I think it's um it's interesting that you say this as a mother of a Sixteen-year-old, almost seventeen. Year old. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I see so much of myself in her because I have modeled this right. Mm-hmm. Because I have been conditioned in the, in the academy, and I have always sought out to prove them wrong, right. Mm-hmm. And so then, my daughter has always seen me work, right. Yeah. And I have worked honestly at. The risk of maybe my health, you know, standing up all night. But what she didn't see is I wasn't doing it for the job. I was doing it for my family because another right. thing that came into play was the single motherhood, right? Mm-hmm. And that I could not fail because I was a single mother and they were counting yeah. on me. Um, but in her, what she saw me do was work, work, work. And now I see her work, work, work. And now at 16, almost 17, I am trying to teach her how to. Um, take care of herself and take Mm -hmm. breaks and not worry about being perfect because she's a straight A student and Mm -hmm. she wants to be perfect you know and so now I have to try to reprogram her because (laughs) she has spent 17 years of her life watching me work yeah it's work
0: really real um both of my parents were very um Push 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 people. Right. Mom's push push. She was in school and doing ministry and, and working a full time job all at the same time and still made it every dance recital and every band concert and all those things. And my dad my dad loves work. My dad loves work maybe more than he loves everybody else. But like he loves work and um and so they're both like push push pushy people, like as far as their work and their drive and stuff. Um and and I you hit like sometimes as even as a kid, I don't know that I picked up on like what they were doing, but that became normal. Like everybody was busy in my Being busy was like a thing. Like a, as a kid, I was busy. My parents were busy, my sisters are busy. Like we were busy. And that became normal. Um, and it wasn't until because I always said, like, my dad's a workaholic, I'm never gonna be like this. Like, never gonna be like that. And I think it was like maybe my first year on the tenure track. And a day went by and I got to the end of the day. It was like late at night too, like one or two in the morning. And I was like, I don't think I ate the day. (laughs) And and I remember like my dad, like it it clicked to me that like, I remember my dad sometimes forgetting to eat Mm -hmm. because he was working. And I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) I have turned into the thing that I did not want to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just, those that work ethic like and it's good to some extent. I don't want to like be like throw every the baby out with the bathwater because I think there is a work ethic you learn um from parents who are so dedicated. And really, like you said, as you get older you understand that they were doing it so that you could have those dance classes and right. you could <laughs> do all of these right. things that you wanted mm-hmm. to do. Um but there is a kind of subconscious way in which you define what is a good work ethic and sometimes it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I do not I d I don't I don't even know. Like I said, I don't even know that we realize that we're teaching our kids that um until like we look up and now my mom's like, are you getting Ross? And I'd be like, oh, well look at like that's the pot <laughs> calling the kettle black. But, right. Uh, <laughs> right. So so yeah, I think um we wait until, you know, they're in these professional positions to then want to have these workshops about <laughs> taking care of yourself and saying no. And it's like, we should have had that conversation a long time ago because now we're trying to deprogram something we programmed into people.
1: Yeah, I'm starting at 17 years old almost. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to switch the subject a little bit. Okay. Um, Just a little bit. You know, um, so so we talked a lot about Black women and and the challenges and things like that. We unpacked some things, but you wrote a book. So I want to kind of make sure we get to that. Um, and so research shows that black women suffer from lower student reviews and microaggression from colleagues and lack of mentorship, lack of mentorship during their educational process, as well as once they enter the academy as faculty and more stringent adherence to policies. Right. And so in your latest book, you focus on black women college student experiences and you provide guidance for success in higher education. And so I want to dig into that a little bit more and say, what led you to author a book of this magnitude?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, uh, shout out to my my co-authors, um, Andrew Arroyo and um, Dominique Baker. Um, Andrew is at um, Virginia Commonwealth University now, but at the time we wrote the book, he was a faculty member at um, Norfolk State University, which is an HBCU. Um, and Dominique Baker is also a Black woman. She's at Southern Methodist University, and she does a lot of work around um, policy and financial aid and things of that sort. So um, she's a amazing, amazing uh, numbers whiz. But um, um, but when we, um, we talked about this book and, when, and the kind of early discussions of it, was really um, thinking through... Um, there isn't when you look at higher ed literature, there isn't a ton of literature around Black women. A lot of um, we have some really great work from early scholars, like Linda Perkins and um, uh, Jacqueline Fleming and Mary Howard Hamilton and Lori Patton Davis, um, who have done some really great work. Rochelle Winkle Wagner around Black women, but it really was scarce. Um, when we looked at kind of what other um, literature was out there about Black women students? And then when you looked at some of the literature around Black women students, it really was—it was, was kind of like two, ma- like three, two or three major areas. It was either all historical, right? So, what did Black women, early Black women, collegiates experience? Or it was um, kind of this model minority, like Black women are great; they're doing all these great things. They're la da- la la. Or Black women's successes as um, collegiates was being pitted against Black men. So it was like, why are Black men not doing well when Black women are doing so great? So it was this very interesting way in which we were only understanding Black women from the mark of success um, and not understanding how they were successful or complicating what success meant or understanding what was happening to them on the way to being successful. And so in this instance, successful was mostly marked by graduation rates and um, degree attainment, right? And so um, me and my co-authors, we really talked about really kind of complicating the way we understand Black women's students' success in higher education And um, I mentioned this earlier, we really wanted to think about what did it take for Black women college students to be holistically successful, right? And so not just marking their success by degree attainment or graduation rates, um, but also what's happening to them psychologically and mentally and um, their, their well-being as a person and their development and their um cognitive and identity development and looking at all of those things. And then we also wanted to um think about that maybe success for some black women is just getting to college. Maybe for some success for some black women is getting through their junior year. It may not be degree attainment. It may not be um graduation and really um rethinking that as well. And so that is what led us to really um, look at this book and, and think about how we could um, come up with a conceptual model for um, the holistic Black women's student success. And our hope was not to be like, this is the model and this is what everyone should follow, um, but really start a conversation that we think had not been pushed that in that way just yet to say like, this is what we think from the culmination of the work of other black women scholar um or scholars who did work around black women and the history and what we know about student success um we want to put this model out there for y'all to test it like we want to put this model out there for you all to start to rethink about how you study black women and let us know if like we want you to say like hey this you know this little box you had here that, that that's not how it works out for black women student athletes there's something else that, that is there or Um, Maybe for low-SES Black women, it looks different. But we just wanted to get that conversation going about how we have to really rethink how we understand Black women's student success.
1: So why is this motto uh, presented in this book important to higher ed?
0: That's a great question.
1: Um, Because I think
0: Black women never get to be in, in higher education, particularly student development theory, um, literature, we, we never get to be the superstar, right? Like, and what I mean by that is that we are always either lumped in with all Black students, so you'll have models of success for Black students, or you'll have models of success for women, and it's like that intersection doesn't exist for us as though we don't have unique experiences and unique needs and unique ways um, in which we navigate this, this world we call higher education. And so for us, it was important to give Black women, if we're, if we're going to be talking about how successful this group is and all these wonderful things that they're doing, then we also need to understand how they develop in the midst of that on their own and outside of kind of being under this these umbrellas of of their gender or their race and having to pick a side which we often find that black women have to do in life right you're you're either black
1: mm-hmm. or you're a
0: woman you don't get to be both mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to pick which one is more important to you and so we um we wanted to um through this model say no like you're not black, just Black or a woman. You're a Black woman, and we want to explore how, um, how you uniquely have to navigate or the supports and things that you uniquely need in order to be successful so that institutions, um, particularly, but also faculty, and even your peers, understand what, what is needed for this specific group to be successful. And not assume that what works for all Black students or all women students works for Black women.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and in this book, you know, you, you make a point, and there was a quote that just stood out to me. It says, embedded in our model of Black women's success is the hope that she will emerge from college with new supports that endure beyond graduation. Why is it important for Black women to have supports?
0: That's great question. So <laughs> um, one of the things, um, and we had so many discussions throughout this model, um, one of the things that we noticed um, that was unique with the research that we were reading through um, and the accounts um, from Black women college students um, is that there were... Um, they, they never, it was never a, a, a lone wolf journey for black women, right? That were that were progressing through to, to this holistic success. Um and so um whether that was family, whether that was peers, whether that um was sororities, whether that was or student organizations, and whether that was mentors, um, the black women who Felt that they were successful, also felt supported, um, and so one of the things that we um, that if you look at our model, when the student gets to holistic success, you see this like dotted arrow that feeds back into um, the the main kind of while they're in college um, uh, portion. And it goes into a box we call external assets. And so what we found from the research was that um, it wasn't just these supports that they got from being in college, right? So whether that was faculty or um, professors or things of that sort, it was also these mentors and these out, these family members, these um, people who from their communities that were kind of these assets or supports to them that were external to the institution that played an important role in their success as well. And so what we, when, we, when we make that quote, what we're, um, what we're saying is that we believe that the more holistically successful Black women we produce, the more we have available to be those external assets to those Black women who are, who are in college now. Mm -hmm. And um, because there seems to be a connection of wanting to give back, wanting to be that support for for another Black woman. Um, And it just seems like this group um, not only needs community, because I think if we look at many different groups, particularly marginalized groups, that's true. But um, I think the idea of seeing uh, another Black woman who was holistically successful um, helped these Black women be, po- they were possibility models for those Black women. So if you made it, then I I can make it. And I think you see that our models for Black women undergraduates, but I think you see that in the professional world too, right? Like it's, it's much more feasible for me to believe I can become a full professor as a black woman, if I see black women who successfully made it through the system and became full professors and also are not downtrodden and up and like, right. This holistically successful thing, like they're happy to have families, you know, they're not, uh, they don't look like beaten down by the, the, the system. Um, and, uh, I I tell this story, um, to people where I think this became real for me. Um, when I was in my master's program it was the first time I had had like a tenured black woman professor, um, Dr. Sharon Friespritt. And it was the first time it ever crossed my mind that like I could be a faculty member. Like I was like, oh wait, like this is a job. Like you can be a professor. Like I just never, yes. never like, even thought about it. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And so, um, and I love uh Sharon Fries, but she's made and she's she's full professor and happy and and has a family and like a functioning human being, which I appreciate. Really um and so when um I became a faculty member, um, I had a master student who who um was a black woman. I grew up in a rural area, and she's from a rural area. And I remember her coming to my office and being like, I think I wanna get a PhD. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, why do you want to get a PhD? Because everybody want to be a doctor nowadays. So I'd be trying to like be like, let's let's not have ideas of grandeur. This is a practical thing you're trying to do. So I was like, why do you want to get a PhD? And she's like, I think I want to do research. I want to be a faculty member. Um, and she was like, I never even thought that was something I could do until um, I had you as a professor. And it was just like the the craziest full circle moment for me, because I was like, like this, us being here and being successful and whole, right? Like, I think that's the other part of it, because some of us make this look like the worst thing that you ever want to do in your life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you should run from it with your hair on fire. But um, us being there and being able to support other Black women through that process, right? Because that same Black professor I had wrote letters of recommendation for me to get into my PhD program you know, um, and, and I wrote letters of recommendation for this student and, and, you know, was her advisor and had her own projects. And so, um, I think it, it, it really is important, um, to have those supports for us because we don't, especially in academia, we don't see us in the, in these spaces thriving. And so, um, seeing people in those spaces thriving who can then help you figure out how to navigate this space and thrive too, um, I think ups your chances of getting through the system. And at the very least makes you feel like you're not fighting it alone.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's really important for Black women.
1: Well, I'm going to shout out Dr. Deborah smith (laughs) Pollard, who's the very first Black woman that I ever saw um, as a full professor at university of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, um, she just planted that seed just seeing her there and seeing her thrive. But then I also had Dr. Um, English, Morgan Gardner, who, um, actually just pushed me and, and stayed in my corner and fought the fought with me, um, to get through the PhD program. And so we need to have, yeah. definitely need to have these, um, black women role models who, um, can really plant some seeds into us and help us navigate. Yeah. And, and I, if we don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. And
0: I want to shout out too, cause I think we leave them out of the, the <laughs> narrative a lot and mm-hmm. I and I want to make sure they're in the narrative. I want to shout out to the black women that we often overlook on college campuses that are probably the best retention of other black women. That's true. Um, And, and what I mean by that, I, I, I worked in the ID office at my mm-hmm. institution, mm-hmm. and my boss was a black woman, and she was the one who made sure I, you know, when I was running into money issues or I was running into issues with faculty, she knew how to get around it. You know, Miss Pearl at the uh, dining services mm-hmm. when I was on financial hold snuck me in the cafeteria. Like these, yeah, <laughs> these people—the front desk worker, the um, facilities people—like they're black women all over the campus who who see something in you sometimes that you don't see in yourself. And they um they too are these like yes. supports and these assets to these black women that help make sure that they stay retained and that they know how to navigate this system. Because a lot of times those are the people who know the system yes. better than anybody else in the institution. Yes. Um, and, and, and I think we, I always like to shout those people out because I think we overlook them too and the role they play in the retention and success of black women students. They are the, the mothers and the fictive kin for these, these black women when they're on campuses and they're trying to navigate these spaces also. Mm -hmm.
1: Let me tell you, one day I was going into my office and, um, I just had, you know, bad week, probably a bad month. Just All these things were going on. And um, a black woman who, was, who had just finished cleaning my office, I was walking to my office and she said, this your office? And I said, yeah. And she's like, you know, she just was like, you know, you go ahead, sister. I see all the stuff you're doing. And, you know, I'm just so proud of you. And let me tell you, she uplifted me. I, I think so many times we don't know who's watching mm-hmm. what we're doing who we may be impacting, people that we don't see, we don't even know their names, but they see us, right? And yeah. so we have to keep pushing because these people are watching and they really need us to succeed um, because they need to see that encouragement too. And they see they, yeah. for us in the next generation and they're always behind the scenes doing simple things like just making sure our rug is straightened up over yeah. And you know, she was like, I always wipe your desk down, you know. <laughs> so now when I go in my office, I see that. And then sometimes I'll leave her a sticky note on my desk or a sticky note on my door um, because I know she's there, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they definitely matter. Yeah. Um, and so thank you for, for sharing that. And I think, um, you know, embedded in, in what you've been saying in this holistic model, holistic success, for Black women includes having supports. And I mentioned right before how research tells us that we often on college campuses, either as students or as faculty, don't receive mentorship. And if we do receive it, one study that I read is if we do receive mentorship, it's not the same type of mentorship as maybe a white um, student or or colleague Mm -hmm. is receiving. Um, it's a different type of of mentorship. It's not a emotional connection um, mentorship if we're receiving it from uh, you know a white colleague or um, mm-hmm. a white professor. But if we receive it from other black women, the emotional connection is there, and mm-hmm. it's just as important as those task oriented mentorship connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sounds like your model sort of picks up on. Why that is so important?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think that was that was one of our goals, and that's why we specifically say holistic success in our model because um, I think we um, we wanted to get it right. Like it's more than just telling or supporting these students on how to get good grades and how to graduate. Because again, we had black women are graduating. And they're getting degrees, but they're also having these high suicide rates. Mm-hmm. They're um, also in a ton of debt mm-hmm. when they get um, out out of these programs, um, and so it's it was like, okay, yeah, we 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 think that they're figuring out how to graduate, but but what what condition are they in? once they graduate. And so we really wanted to look at what were the things that helped black women students be whole when they got through the system. And that's why we in, um, if you look in our model, um, before you ever get to achievement, there are um, these kind of four things um, that we say play off of each other. And that's that external assets or external supports their identity development, so how they begin to see themselves and understand themselves, Um, their non-cognitive skills development, right? So a lot of things focus on like their cognitive development. These are like their interpersonal skills and leadership development, these kind of things. And then their values and commitments. What are we teaching them or what are they learning or interpreting um, our important values and important commitments? So this goes back to kind of that conversation around like, do I take on everyone else's burden? And that's what I've been taught as my value or to this organization. And right. Um, so think about how all those things play a part in how they pursue achievement and how they progress towards achievement and success. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really what we wanted to focus on is this, this idea of like, it's not just about getting the degree. Like that's that can't be the only marker of success. It has to be are they are they healthy? Are they whole? Mm-hmm. Um are are do do they see themselves as successful? Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think that's what we really wanted to get at.
1: Um, I'm glad that you made these points because you know my area is mental health, and so my next <laughs> my next question or our final part to our discussion today is definitely going to be so, uh, about mental health because I think that's so important. Um, so some will argue that Black women in the academy suffer mental health challenges that stem from their experiences as students and is further exaggerated through their experiences as faculty, which we've talked about, right? I would argue that PTSD is the result of that in process. Mm -hmm. It's a result of having all those different um, negative experiences and and things from undergrad to this faculty level that can lead to PTSD. And we see the symptoms as depression and anxiety and all those things, but really what it boils down to is PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So in your view... Um What steps must the institution take in order to really foster environments where black women can thrive not only as students but as faculty and colleagues?
0: That is a great question and actually, in our book, we have a whole section <laughs> about like what we think institutions can do but um I think one one of the things um uh we talked, and I just laughed because we had so many um, different discussions <laughs> as we wrestled through this book. Um, and so, um, one of the things that we talk about that institutions um, can do to help these Black women su- be successful is to have Black women at the table to make decisions about what the institution does, right? And so, often we're not in the room, or it's only one of us in the room. Um, and so people are making decisions about what will be, um, what will foster success for us or what will make um, successful environments for us. And we never get any input um, about what, what we actually think and know and experience. And so um, one of the, the things we suggest is that um, more Black women are brought into the decision making process and the policy setting process um, at institutions. Our caveat to that, though, is, because this is where we got into the deep discussion, um, is that Black women shouldn't have to say Black women, right? And Black women, um, all the onus can't be on us to figure it out, right? So though Black women should be part of the process and given the power and agency to help make decisions um, black women should also be a priority to everyone at the institution um, and, and when they're making decisions. Um, and so you can't have the one Black VP, Black woman VP, and expect her to tell you everything that needs to be done this, to help Black women. You um, These... Institutional leaders need to be educating themselves. They need to be into the research and having conversations with their Black women faculty and their Black women students and really getting a gauge on what it is that those students and those faculty need. Um, I think also institutions have to challenge themselves to see the barriers that they have created for Black women um, in their institution um that that may have been upheld by tradition or um because this is the way we've always done it and being and really challenging um how, how challenging them, themselves on that and removing those barriers and i think um that can be really challenging for institutions because um again if you're like well black women seem to be hopping over these hurdles just fine how is it a barrier? Just because Black women are learning how to get through the obstacle course does not mean that you should get rid of the obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that institutions really have to start to challenge themselves on why they continue to um, create barriers and obstacles for Black women to conquer as opposed to removing those barriers. And sometimes, um, you know, particularly I'm thinking about faculty it could be the tenure process. It could um, be the hiring process, right? Um, It could be the way in which we value certain work, right? So we know that research shows us that um, people who do research around um, identity, such as race or class um, and things of that sort, their work is not looked upon as rigorous as, um, maybe people who do more, um, scientific non-identity work. And, uh, we also know that a lot of people from marginalized communities do that work, right? So, so how does all of that play together, um, when it comes to how we evaluate people's tenure portfolios, how we evaluate candidates for faculty positions, um, even looking at what schools, um, we see, um, how we value or evaluate, um, or place different value to to different types of schools and institutions that people come from. When we know, for instance, do you look at a graduate student coming into your institution from an HBCU as the same way as you look as a graduate student coming from a large public, well-known PWI in your state? Um, and if you do look at when we and and so that may not seem like it directly co- connects to black women, but when we think about HBCU populations are about seventy percent women students, that does impact the access that black women graduate students have into your graduate programs, right? And so these are like the barriers that we don't really dig at. That I think we have to really challenge these mindsets and and these um, kind of hidden barriers. Um, and I think um, outside that is just understanding that Black women are there. So this is, <laughs> I think like Black women, and there's some, you know, um, some of the earlier scholars talk about this, right? This We're invisible um, to a lot of institutions. Um, again, we're either women or we're Black or we don't exist at all um and i think institutions have to start acknowledging that black women are on their campuses a lot of times black women are the wheels that make the bus go around on your campus um and so we need to take the time to acknowledge them acknowledge the diversity of who they are so one of the things that i wrestle with um when I see different student programming at different colleges is that all black women are not trying to be, um, these, these like, these like boxes we put black women in either. They all want to be Queens with, you know, looking kind of the stereotypical feminine kind of way. And, um, or they're, we, you know, in the kind of racist understandings of them, they all are like Meg Stallion, who I love, by the way. Or, <laughs> um, and, and there's just such a, there's such a wide range of diversity of Black women. Mm-hmm. So this idea that you can create a program for Black women to learn how to wear suits and um, <laughs> talk a certain way, like that's problematic, right? Because you may have a Black woman on your campus who um, prefers to perform more masculine or traditionally masculine. Mm -hmm. You you have LGBT Black women on your campus. You have um, Black women from different um, class levels. And so really seeing Black women on your campus and giving them the space to be a diverse group and then understanding that that diverse group needs supports for them. And I think the more institutions see Black women um, and hear Black women, right, listen to them, give them spaces to talk, giving them platforms um, to be a part of the decision-making process, the more they can shape their institutions to be places that can holistically su- um support Black women to be
1: successful. Thank you for that. I think you really summed up all the layers that Institutions have to address in order to really um, start making the institution a place where Black women can thrive. I want to end our discussion today with a quote by Maya Angelou. She said, Your ancestors took the lash, the brandy iron, humiliations, and oppression because one day they believed you would come along and flesh out the dream. So it is my belief that Black women in education and Black women becoming more educated to build communities and infrastructure for Black people are a part of fleshing out the dream Maya Angela speaks to. So this is Making It Plain with Dr. Key. I would like to thank our special guest, Dr. Commodore, for joining us. You can purchase Dr. Commodore's book on Amazon. It is titled Black Women College Students, A Guide to Student Success in Higher Education. Don't forget to follow Making It Plain with Dr. Key on Instagram. And stay up to date on the latest information related to Black families, Black communities, and Black women. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com.